Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Raf. What is going on again? Uh, what's going on? Yeah, uh, what is going on? Uh, we're, this is our 21st episode, so now we're officially... Oh, no, yeah, we can drink in America. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's funny, every, we're 21 every time we start the podcast, I just put towels all over my living room, and uh, on the table, on the bookshelf, and it kind of works. I remember not doing it one episode, and it sounded a bit more echoey, so... Yeah, no, it does um, does sound better. We, ha- I mean, my setup gets more and more refined every week. Yeah, um, I'm si- yeah. I've got pillows around me. I'm in a corner so that yeah. It I'm also not, sets the mood. Room. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like a little ritual. I mean, the the ultimate podcast setup for me would be a log cabin in Colorado or something where a lot of rock rock albums were recorded in the '70s. Mm. That's, yeah, like that's the dream. I was listening to a song the other day on on Spotify or whatever. You know, that's what I use. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, and in the song, I really liked this element that was a mistake, and it was a creaking chair. So it's like soft piano, and then you mm. hear the you hear you hear the chair creak yeah. of the of the person playing the piano. You hear some mouse clicks. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, maybe we should add some sound effects. Like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I like this because it well because the body is so absent from most uh, songs, you know, uh, like the actual well, uh, human yeah. performing it, you know, well, unless in, they're singing. In, with classical guitar, you always hear the fingers slide across the strings. Mm, yes, that yeah, that, yeah. that kind of sound. Yeah, yeah, it's it, nice to feel the, hear the humans. So I know you asked me to clear my throat before I started. I always do this ritual of blowing my nose. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to embarrass myself, my humanity. Here, I'm going to just do it again for us. <laughs> <laughs> the body, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> now you know I'm a real, I'm like a real person. I'm not a, I'm no, not. No, that's exactly I'm what an, an AI that's, would do to convince you. That's would do? Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I think it's authentic. I'm snotty just like you. <laughs> And yeah. how about you? What you're in New York? Yeah. Um, um, so oh this yeah. week, uh, this week's topic would be the different terminologies like new media, net art, post internet. Right. Everyone's least favorite topic. Yeah. But, yeah. But the, favorite the to talk about. And then the other topic it, related to that would be self branding and online presence, which are very related. Mm-hmm. And the other topic is. I got some new AirPods, the the wireless earbuds, and my cable modem. I wanted to okay, yeah. So let's let's talk about the cable modem first. <laughs> yeah, because I, I don't. You just gave me a little hint of why you wanted to talk about any of this stuff yeah. just before we started. But uh, yeah, so what? so it, it just to, so people understand. I'm sitting at a desk in the corner of the room, and from this corner, I have a pretty nice view of Manhattan. Like it, it's it's not a. I'm on the sixth floor, so it's a pretty good view. I can see the Freedom Tower. I can see this weird AT&T building that doesn't have windows. It's a skyscraper without windows because it's filled with servers. <laughs> oh, uh, I thought it was just because they treated their employees terribly. <laughs> no. And then there's conspiracy theories where they, people think they actually torture people in there and whatever. You know, people like to imagine things. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I have a great view of New York. And then there's my bookshelf. And I'm always looking at it. And I have... A lot of nice things. There's a little Austin Lee painting and some flowers. And I organized all the magazines in these boxes uh, so it's not so messy. It's, it, I'm trying to make it nice. And then okay. there's the cable modem. 
because the cable comes out that corner of the wall. So that's yeah. the most convenient place to place. In in other apartments I lived, the cable modem was always in the broom closet. Mm-hmm. Wherever the gas and the water enter your apartment, that's where you would put the cable modem. Right. But this apartment, I think that's normally the corner where you would put the TV. So that's where cable comes in. Okay. So the, the cable modem is stuck to a coaxial cable, which is a very stiff, uh, thick white cable, very apparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's just so ugly. And it's this corner that my eyes are always there. Yeah, you. I so, mean... I visited your apartment. Obviously, I can see it now, but there's like yeah. not a single thing out of place. So I can imagine exactly, yeah. But mm-hmm. even even a lot of people have a nice uh, AV setup in their living room, and the the cable modem has to be on top of other stuff for the signal. So I I finally found a way to hide the modem, and mm-hmm. that's why last week uh, our conversation. I don't know if anybody noticed, but our conversation was kind of slow because yeah. the connection was really bad, and you kept not hearing me, and I kept not hearing you. But we were too polite. To pause the podcast. Classic, a Dutchman yeah. and a Canadian. <laughs> and so I hid the cable modem in one of the boxes of the, the magazine folders. And I was so happy. It was completely invisible. It was mm-hmm. just, the, the cables were organized. I was very happy. But I touched it and it was, it was super hot. I was, I was mostly worried about it catching fire. Mm-hmm. Well, so you I know, put it, yeah. I put it matters. back in a visible place and then I Googled... There's a whole genre of Pinterest, which is hiding your cable router, your cable <laughs> really? modem. Yeah, it, it, people make fake books and then you put your... But then I read all these articles, don't do that because the fans of the modem, uh, if, they don't, if the fan is not working well, it'll overheat and it'll start slowing down the signal to compensate. So I guess yeah, that's what was happening. That's called throttling. CPUs do that too. So if yeah. your computer gets too hot... Um, like one of the things you can do, that's why, you know, when you see those gamer towers, they have like all those crazy cooling setups Yeah, because you can and increase they have water the perf- cooling and all that. Yeah. Stuff. You can com- increase the performance of your computer if you can, uh, lower the heat. Probably everyone who, who's listening to this knows this, but there's even a culture of like called undervolting. I don't know if you know about this, but like sending less power into your device, like and then and then on top of that cooling to get even more power so that you mm. can overclock and under under volt yeah um, and you, you like there's a culture of adding thermal paste and like thermal pads like you could open that modem up and like you could like okay let's soup this modem up like <laughs> yeah. you could add like liquid cooling <laughs> yeah anyway some nitrogen but yeah. uh, I started googling why cable modems are so big and we, because and you would think it's a pretty simple task there's a signal coming in and he has to create a well, Wi-Fi you'd signal. also assume there was like some industrial design after 30 years of internet you know like no they would... yeah but uh, uh, cable companies rent you a modem and then you could buy another one and then mm-hmm. so I think I pay five dollars a month for this mo- month what month that monstrosity. much yeah 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 <laughs> that's crazy there's, there's uh, I really don't have any other choice uh, I used to it used to be called Time Warner they rebranded it to Spectrum because people hated it so much yeah they're like, oh, let's yeah. re- rebrand it. And then they keep calling you saying like, oh, we're the new Spectrum. We're much better. <laughs> so am I going to get a discount? No, but we can offer you TV. It's like, oh, uh, right. They always I don't give want you, TV. Yeah, I don't no, want telephone. <laughs> no one ever wants TV. <laughs> yeah. But I don't understand because, so in my house, I don't have a modem. I just have an Ethernet jack. Ooh. Well, then the modem must be somewhere hidden. Yeah, no, that's no, nice. It's because it's fiber directly to, uh, oh. mo- in, in, at least in, where I live in Toronto, it's becoming quite common. And then you they, you have a wireless adapter. Uh, no, I, it goes into a router that I have, which is kind of ugly, but it blends in. 
Yeah. But I could just have the Ethernet going straight into because my the, computer. I, I have seen... Uh, so there's a modem and there's a router, and mine is both. But th there are nice modems. Uh, wait. There's nice ugly modems and there's nice routers. There's the mm -hmm. Apple one and there's Eero and uh, whatever. E yeah. the e so, I think it's Eero, yeah. Yeah, that or that's good. a Wi-Fi extender. But anyway, mm -hmm. people have made efforts to make routers good look, look good okay. Good-looking routers, yeah. But why not well, modems? And I think the bottom line is that modems are usually uh, provided by a cable company and they just don't care. I, yeah, and I have heard that the U.S. is worse than Canada is pretty bad. I mean, but I do use a small supplier instead of like a big Time Warner. But we have our big Time Warners. They're called Rogers and, and mm -hmm. Bell. But this, there's lots of little small suppliers because we have this uh, very hostile telecommunications commission here. Like you have the FCC and then we have the equivalent here is like always passing laws to try and make things more fair. They always they kind of get it wrong, but they get it right enough <laughs> That there's competition, right? Yeah. There's no, there's like no competition in New York, as I understand it. There's only one option. Well, the it, the other option, so I can get Verizon DSL, but it's very slow and it has a monthly cap of data. Like it's still so using it's an old really... copper phone line, though. Like yeah. The competition yeah. I'm talking about is like this no, company and that... I, I always see the FiOS trucks around here, but I think right. uh, downtown Manhattan it, it, it suffers from this. Uh, what do you call it when you you modernize so early that then by, mm -hmm. by the time it's modern times, you're really old. Right, 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 right. So yeah. it's the same with the subway in New York. It, they, they had it first, but now it's like the, the lamest subway of any metropolis. <laughs> it's pretty good, though. I mean, I did, yeah, it runs on like 1920s technology. But yeah, they have, you've seen that little movie where they... Yeah, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> but they have the most important technology, which is the space for the track. Like, they, they could replace it all if they wanted to tomorrow. Well, there's the, there's the L train that goes from uh, Manhattan to Brooklyn, which... A lot of people, it, it's extremely packed, and it got quite damaged in Hurricane Sandy, and they patched it up a little bit, but now they're going to close mm -hmm. it for two years to really fix it. But as I understand it, Fios, um, they're, like Bloomberg, when he was in office, he passed a law that made it like they have to offer it to every New Yorker within a certain period of time. Yeah, well, I see the trucks everywhere, and I signed up, like you can enter your zip code, and uh, when is it coming? Please let me know. Mm -hmm. But I haven't heard from them. Yeah, I heard there, there's like a... a, a I heard a podcast, another But I think podcast the, the state of New this. York or something wants to sue the cable companies because yeah. they promised a lot of stuff and they didn't do anything. That's right. That's right. But it's crazy because it's a product that people would like or, or, or really would like to, like they really want, take my money, right? You probably pay a little bit more. Maybe not. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure. But well, you probably pay a little bit more for the speed and, and the elegance. There's this other thing that I didn't know. There's, there's things you don't know until you move mm -hmm. permanently. But... America has a culture of haggling even with official stuff. So uh, <laughs> your your cable bill goes up every six months. Uh, it's not a fixed price. So you sign up and then after six months, oh, yes, it, go, yes, it yes. goes up $12 Promotional offers, yeah. and then it goes up $14. Yeah. And you don't notice because you're busy. It's and all of a sudden offer, it's really yeah. high. And then you have to call them. And then there's some keywords. So you're saying... I'm not happy with the service. I, I'm thinking of switching to another provider. And then the mm -hmm. person on the phone, as soon as you say, I'm thinking of switching, they can say, well, I can offer you the, the good rate again for another six months. Oh, you didn't know about this? Yeah, not <laughs> before I moved here. But it, it yeah. goes further. Like it, um, I always renegotiate. Yeah. Well, if, but I, in, in the Netherlands, there's no negotiating on, on <laughs> utilities. There's a, there's a price, so that's it. But a friend of it mine... It is pretty funny. A friend of mine was riding his bicycle and he got hit by a car. Not too bad. 
but he's still like, oh, I should probably get this checked out. So he goes to the emergency room and they uh, do a <laughs> oh lot God, of photos and adorable. scanning. Um, you know, he got hit on his hip and he fell, but it, it's okay. He's he's fine. Mm-hmm. But he, he goes to the emergency room and they do all kinds of expensive scans and he gets the bill and it was $15,000. But he has Dutch insurance. He's a mm-hmm. Dutch guy living here. Mm-hmm. So, okay, well... Um, $15,000, he calls the Dutch insurance company, it's fine, they will take care of it, but it takes two weeks. So mm. the American hospital keeps calling him every day because they're nervous the money's not coming. Mm. And they're like, where's the money? Where's the money? We need the money. Are you going to pay? And they know they don't have much uh, leverage because he's not a U.S. citizen. So they're like, yeah. well, if you don't pay, it's going to be really bad for your credit. He's like, yeah, so what? Um, <laughs> so... He starts talking to them and he starts looking online a little bit and it turns out that this amount of 15,000 is totally negotiable. So he starts saying, well, uh, I don't have $15,000 on the bank, do you? And the person on the phone is, uh, no, no, of course not. Okay, well, how much can you pay? And he's like, mm-hmm. um, maybe 6,000, like, can you pay 7,000? Yeah, I guess, okay. Well, if you pay seven thousand now, it's okay. So he pays the seven thousand, and then his Dutch insurance pays him the fifteen. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was a happy. He accident. made a profit. That's I think yeah. that's insurance fraud. I'm glad you didn't mention <laughs> <laughs> that he broke some kind of international treaties. In the, yeah, in it's the funny. Kitchen. I I tell these stories, and then it, it, podcasts are so intimate. I feel like I'm just talking to you. Mm-hmm. And I think last episode I was talking about a, an artist whose studio grew too fast, and it turns out he was listening to the podcast and he recognized <laughs> the story. Yeah. So I, I'll tell a lot of stories without names. Yeah, yeah, that happened to me last week because well, yeah. I, I had just done some studio visits. But it's kind of surprising. No, it's like, oh, you guys actually listen to our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I know, we're always forgetting. Yeah. Like, who would want to listen to this? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's true. People at work have started to listen, so my two worlds have uh, started but, to collide as well. On the on the. On the cell phone side, the competition did a lot of good stuff in the U.S. So that, that there's the John Ledger, T-Mobile guy, and he's like, everything's lame, we're going to make it cool. And, and he created this dream phone plan, which includes worldwide free internet. Mm-hmm. The, but there's like a... There's a net neutrality debate going on right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, because some I, I know it's tricky, but he mm-hmm. gave me this one thing. You're the same. You travel all the time. And I used mm-hmm. to have a portfolio of SIM cards. Yeah. Oh, I'm in France. This is my French number. Oh, and this sort of James Bond wallet with uh, yeah. different one, access have, around yeah. the world. And I can't tell you how nice it is. That the I one pay, world plan. Mm-hmm. I pay, I think, $50 a month, and I have internet around the world. So that's not bad. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Uh, I have a similar plan, but I told you it costs me $10 a day when I'm roaming. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so Canada's always a little bit more expensive, but we have like one-tenth the number of people, uh, so we always expect to pay a little bit more because we're like, well, it's a big country. We got, Someone's yeah. got to pay for it. Yeah. But yeah. we complain about it all the time. So the net so, result, so that's yeah. A, it, yeah I, so what's I your think- plan? What's your plan? What are you going to do with this modem? Are you, why don't you like put it, like uh, drill it, drill like uh, fix it under the tape desk? Like I, I, I looked at it, so I um, to fix it under the desk. Then if I move the table, then I think the cables would collapse. I could fix it under a shelf, but mm-hmm. the the modem is quite big, and the way the the cable comes out, it's a very stiff cable. So I, <laughs> I feel like high, so. What I did now is I just planted it and put a painting in front of it. And it kind of okay. hides most of it, so it's uh, <clears throat> and it's cool. 
Yeah, it's okay. I'm, I'm at peace now. Yeah. All right. Yeah, well, but it, it's just funny that the mobile industry has been so on point with miniaturization and optimizing and being consumer friendly. So phones yeah. get better and better because there's so much competition, and mm-hmm. the phone plans get better, uh, and the desktop industry is just like whatever. Yeah, I mean the there's other industries like that that have progressed or not progressed, like thermostats and you yeah, know. yeah, aviation. I guess. I guess. I feel chairs like get, going, they, they also miniaturize the, the chairs. Yeah. Yeah. Just like yeah. the mobile industry. I've been taking a lot of yeah a, a few transatlantic flights recently, and just like the trend seems to be towards less again. Like how much less can we give them? So yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll give you a really tiny meal. Yeah, like on this one airline I take now, I've just resigned that I have to take. It's so cheap. It's like you have to pay for water, and on one flight I actually transatlantic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to pay for Because you would die water. if you don't have enough water. Hey, That's dangerous so on one on my first flight, I made this argument, and I was feeling sick. And I was like, I'm feeling sick. I can't pay for the water. <laughs> and they're like, are you really sick? So they really had to They like, they yeah, thought, yeah, yeah, they had yeah, to yeah. check if I was lying. And I was like, You're I'm going to go drink from the, the toilet. Yeah, I said, I'm going to go drink from the toilet. And they're like, no, no, don't do that. And I was like, well, then will you give me water? No, sorry, you have to pay. And so we go. Th- it was like wow. 10 minutes of back and forth, me kind of up but in it, the it's, it's so tricky because you can't take water through customs or security. Of course, they know this. They know. Anyway, they did give me the water, but on the sly, they like they like slid it over to me. Like, which airline is this? Wow, it's like oh, an Icelandic yeah, yeah. airline, but it's like five hundred dollars to Berlin. You can't really compete with that, and I think you can get as low as two hundred dollars. Is it a direct flight? Yeah, no. Well, you you touch down in in uh, Reykjavik, but yeah. Anyway, so I mean, we're gonna... Jeremy, you're a famous new media artist, and I know you always want to accommodate everyone in the world. But if you're flying this much, you should say, I need a direct flight. Because it, <laughs> I, I don't care if it's just a touchdown, but a direct flight means four or five hours less. Well, maybe the, yeah, maybe this is a good way to get into somehow get into the categories topic. But you always have two options when you're traveling as an artist. One is they can book all the flights for you. And you just you kind of take you, you said, I, I'd like to come in and out at these times. Right. And they'll book it all. And they usually have a great agency or something like that. But they'll do that like six months in advance. And I'm always like, ah, I don't know what my schedule is going to be. And if they do all the booking, it's really hard to change flights. I don't know if you've had this experience mm-hmm. of trying to change flights after a gallery has booked them for you or, or whoever. No, it's, it's usually fine. I don't know. I just had it. I I just had it recently, and I couldn't change the flights, and I meant I couldn't go to New York. But when you, so sometimes I just prefer to do my own planning. Flexibility, yeah, Yeah, because I'm going to a bunch of different countries, and anyway, like, and I want to get the points, (laughs) yeah, and all this stuff. Like, I'm going to get the money back anyway. So, but then once I do that, then I'm like, ooh, maybe I could save a little money on this, pocket it, because they're going to pay me anyway, and and so it's like you maybe with the. Well, I want to do another episode about frugality and how. It, it, you're raised with this sort of both of us with this World War Two mentality of saving <laughs> yeah. a penny and it's actually costing you <laughs> yeah yeah it's true anyway at the end of the day uh, yeah you end up probably spending more just on heartache and, and stuff but uh, so yeah. we wanted to talk so categories though so this is yeah yeah so it, it's, it, here's a little metaphor a visual metaphor mm-hmm. when it, I think I wrote a text and I never published it because that's the big part of me I love the podcast because you can keep be kind of ambiguous in, in mm-hmm. dialogue. So, my idea is that when you're young uh, and you start making work, for the audience, it's like looking at the night sky and there's all these artists, which is little stars around the entire sky, mm, and there's beautiful. so many of the stars. So, and what you so need pretty. is constellations. So you need to say, okay, that's the Big Dipper, mm. 
that's uh, sad, uh, uh, whatever the names of the constellations, but you need these groups <laughs> yeah. to find them. Yeah. So th I think the young artists recognize that they don't really want to be in a group. Of course, they, uh, me is most important, but mm -hmm. hey, I'm completely unknown. Nobody knows what I'm about. If I, I meet all these people, they're pretty cool. Let's do something together and we're visible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then members of the constellation start doing embarrassing things. <laughs> okay, that's what and yeah. that's how all the art movements fall apart so I think all ah. the art movements start as like hey I'm all alone up in the night sky I'm just a twinkling star hey mm -hmm. there's some stars around me together we'll be this cool constellation mm -hmm. and then everybody starts doing their own thing you're like oh I don't know if I feel at home with this group and yeah well what you're describing is kind of yeah it's to me I just keep hearing branding kind of stuff <laughs> maybe because of my history working on brands like but Every, mm -hmm. You know, whenever you start a business, yeah, they're just the different terms for the same thing. Like, <clears throat> is is uh, uh, are paintings for the Catholic Church in the in medieval times? Is that branding or or was that? Well, it's uh, always I, it, people always cringe when you use that word. But let's go back to my let's go back to our own experience. So my own experience, you know, was exactly like you described, right? Like I was making work alone, and I'll say this is fundamentally important. Um, and I think other listeners who I've talked to have this experience too. I was doing something that no one, when I looked around my, for my classmates or, you know, my local community, no one else was doing the same thing. In fact, they thought what I was doing was like weird, sometimes terrible. They might laugh. They're like, what's that guy doing? It's weird. <laughs> we don't know what to do with it. There's nothing weird about you, Jeremy. That's hard to imagine. <laughs> well, I felt like I didn't fit in. Right. And so yeah. this Which first is the goal. That's the funny thing about art is you sh that's exactly what you should do is not fit in because mm -hmm. you're trying to create something new. But no one tells you that early on. So early on, you're you're kind of excited because yeah, you know, because you, people are like, I don't know what to compare you to, or I don't have a reference for you, kind mm -hmm. of thing. And then you start to see people around you, like you said. And the way for me, I looked on. I, I was like, the internet was coming up, and I was spending more and more of my time there. And I saw other artists doing similar things, different for sure, but like their ideas were similar. And I was like, oh, yeah. other yeah. people do think like me. Because I was just used to being like the nerd artist, right? Well, yeah. So you probably recognize that people treated the computer as more than just a tool. Yeah. And then they called these people, or these people were calling themselves something different that I hadn't heard before. They were calling themselves like net artists or internet artists, but they were having a debate about it even then yeah. <laughs> because net art as, <laughs> is grounded in the 90s. Uh, and I was like, well, this is interesting. Like, I, I feel more at home here than I do among my regular community. Where Because art school at the time was basically Joseph Boyce, Paul McCarthy sort of vibe. Yeah. And well, I was specifically at the time doing a, my I was really focused on being a video artist. Like and video mm -hmm. art was like my training. I work, you know, as my mentor was a video artist, and then I enrolled in a master's in video art, very specific. And I was like really disciplined on mm -hmm. pure on video. But when I looked at my video art community, I was like, this stuff sucks. Was there <laughs> like, sno was there snobbery about which tapes to use? Um, which tape? Oh, tapes. That's funny that you yeah, said which that. Which brand that of tape? That's yeah. uh, that's lingo. Yeah, of course you wanted to use Fuji film. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. There was like, yeah, there were higher quality tapes. There was like a Fuji brand that was. Uh, or was the best there brand. also a, a very low end tape that was legendary because the '60s artists used it because it was cheap and it had its own crappiness? No, really. There's just like a couple brands of Fuji. The problem back then was it was digital tapes, like those little mini DVs. Yeah. Do you remember mini DV? Yeah. And just before that had been like this eight millimeter version and. 
if you got a glitch on the tape, you'd lose like a whole, you could lose up to a minute of video, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was really important that they not that they hold magnet, the magnetism really well. It's kind of ridiculous how physical they were, even though it was digital. Um, and f- tapes failed all the time, or not not all the time, but often enough that, that if was something a big happened, part why I never worked with video. It, it it just seemed really cumbersome. Yeah, it was. It was terrible. Anyway, I mean, the transition happened, but online was I was interested in video on the internet, and like none of my you know, peers were really talking about that. So because video was supposed to be seen on the Sony Trinitron cube monitor. Yeah, and I was like, monitor? Like, and, uh, <laughs> anyway, I was like, try- I wanted to reach more people. And I wanted to talk about how video was different now. What and year are we talking? 2003, 2004. Oh, yeah. So online video was coming up. Yeah, I was like, but people were just putting postage stamp sized things. And I was like, no, you could like, if you compress it properly, you could put a whole video, but then galleries are like, ooh, we don't want to give it all away. It's digital. People could pirate artists' work. And actually, at that time, people were pirating Matthew Barney works. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. I remember. They were on on Hotline and things like that. Yeah, that's right. It's funny you said hotline. No one except you, maybe and a few other listeners will know what that is. But that's that was the pirating sort of service. It was cool. Yeah. yeah, it was like a, a direct to server kind of thing. Yeah, Soulseek. Yeah, cool I still stuff. use Soulseek. <laughs> I didn't even know it still existed. Oh yeah. Uh, anyway, so was that similar to your experience, or were you a re- like were well, you just because you up- were there before me? So I, that's how I met you because yeah. you were already there and you were part of the cool cl- kids in the computers club kind of gang, right? Well, um, because I remember a little bit there was a, a, there was just the internet, and then on the internet I would see interesting things, mm-hmm. and there was a whole group of Dutch people and and even a Dutch TV station that made a section of online experiments with filmmakers and designers and artists and uh, all kinds of people did experimentation online so i it immediately felt like oh there's a there's a there's an energy online and there's a place Mm -hmm. for it but then i met a uh, an artist called miltus manetas and the art movement and that was a whole thing um he came up with the idea of owning a website and putting it in a domain name and he started this gallery called the electronic orphanage so it was a cool moment of different things going on where did you meet miltus by the way because he's on the, the internet this, and this is he, a legend right well he 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 found my work and and then he said oh you're very neat and i didn't even know what that meant and then it turned <laughs> out that he started this art movement and had a word for it and the word was created by a branding company it's it was the same company that created the word Pentium, and they created the word Power Book and things like that. Oh, I didn't know so, that. And he he got a foundation to pay a hundred thousand dollars to come up with a new word for an art movement. <laughs> and then that word <laughs> yeah. is Neen, and it was kind of a related to the word screen and new and. But it's really hard to come up with a new word. So that yeah yeah, and that was exciting. And then it fell apart a few years later. So I think that's the natural direction of of art movements. But. Uh, yeah, it, well, did it fall apart? I mean, I feel like it was. it's one thing to fall yeah, apart or it didn't Yeah, people got annoyed with each other. Oh, okay, because I just thought, like, it, it was foreign to me when I found it, but then I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense, but it, it just belonged to a small group of Dutch internet artists. That's what I thought. Like, <laughs> <laughs> No, it was, and and uh, I also met people outside of Nien, so I, I remember the blog uh, work with Oliver Lerk and Alexander yeah. Domanovic, and well, then I met, them, I met them in Berlin, mm-hmm. and then uh, I met Jody and... Uh, those kind of net artists and so there's all these little pockets but it, 
I do remember when I started, even before Neen, that I remember new media art being very techy and unemotional. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I wanted you, to make things that were more cheerful or funny or yeah, weird. Yeah. Uh, so it, I wanted to use technology in a, a more... Uh, just I wanted to be myself more. I didn't want to play a role of like a new media artist has to be German and critical of the medium and academic and, and wearing a black turtleneck or something. Yeah, yeah, like the stereotype of like, I am a critical artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Uh, you you are the medium. And you might the you might like this technology, but it is actually awful. It's like Arnold Schwarzenegger speaking, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's because of Ars Electronica in, I think, in Austria. Yeah, but that so was what, what new media art was, was supposed yeah. to be. Yeah, in the pre Ars Electronica, which is this big prize. And then there was contemporary art, which was this other world where everything was uh, supposed to look like it came out of the seventies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and contemporary art is a whole other thing. So I didn't associate with contemporary art right away. I was more interested in kind of like uh, video art, and video art was like closer to film, and there were screenings and like festivals, and I did like festival circuit. But I found a community, but then I I found that community boring after a while. And then I found the internet artists, and some of them were making video, and I was like, oh, I guess I could call myself an internet artist. But then among internet artists, I didn't really follow because they had this like, you know, you know the, the the graphic everyone refers to, like the art happens here between the two nodes in the network. And I remember mm-hmm. being a young artist and not really understanding what that meant, so I felt like I didn't quite belong. I now understand it. That it was actually very close to the way I was thinking at the time. Um, but I had no one to talk to me about that stuff. And then I stumbled well, into computer art, which is new media art. And yeah. um, and but I stumbled all, all these into categories are, are sort of uh, special Olympics. Well, it was weird because like every and I don't I didn't plan this and maybe no one does but like you would you would get kind of maximum potential in one community and then I was like okay I'm done with this community I'd move on to the next one and then I'd be like done with this move on to the next one and then I realized um, like it's only to, it's only now that I realized working in branding and I've read a lot of like brand books and company, like entrepreneur books that this is called like a beachhead strategy I don't know if you've ever heard this but it's no. like or it's also called like crossing the chasm. But basically, what you want to do, what any company, so when a tech company starts up, I'm going to try. It's and, like uh, Facebook starting in universities and then broadening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You nailed it. Maybe I don't need to talk about it all. But basically, what happens is early on, you have these early adopters that start to use your product, um, and they're they're willing to kind of sacrifice and do anything to you know for the new thing, right? And then. You try and reach a few more people and usually you get to this point where you can't find any new people because no one else understands your product or what you're trying to do. And they're looking for different things. They don't want it to be the latest and greatest. They want it to be trustworthy and like easy yeah, to yeah, understand. Yeah. And, um, but that's but, the idea that, that a very small group of people can have a huge impact. And same with Delete My Uber. Like it's only a couple hundred thousand people. But if the idea catches on, it could be the demise of Uber. Yeah, but so what most companies want to do is they find communities of people, like, and they'll call them segments, and they'll say, like, okay, we're doing really well with creative people. Let's just continue to do really well there. And if we can really maximize creative people, then they'll start to tell other people. And then we can take on another group of people. And let's say that those people yeah, are like because lawyers. Because there's also, there's also uh, different groups, and certain groups uh, yeah. will always change. They, they will always resist to change. And so yeah. creative people are often curious on the next thing. Yeah. So they're easier to 
Sure, uh, it could be, but it could persuade. be like it could be like you you decide to take on sneaker like uh, you know sneaker pimps or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but whatever whatever subset you start with is going to be mm-hmm. a small fragment of people who are eager to find out about new things. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they have to. They have to. The whoever you like start the enterprise with has market to be is is notoriously hard <laughs> to change because they have all these protocols and processes and budgets that take decades to change. Right. You want to go for where there's the maximum growth potential and people really understand what you're doing. Right. You if, don't want to like. You, yeah. yeah. If you look you, at mobile phones, it, it, they were always meant to be. Enterprise contracts were never about usability or user mm-hmm. friendliness, so everybody was on their BlackBerry. But people started using the iPhone privately, and at some point they were like, "Why mm-hmm. am I still using this BlackBerry? It doesn't make any sense." Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that was because like uh, Apple had established credibility with a small group of people that were really yeah. loyal, and then they grew it slowly. So you want to just grow segment by segment usually. But then I realized I real I didn't in art the same thing kind of is unfortunately true. <laughs> which is you start with one small community and then you have to take on the next community. But often these communities are tied to a medium. <laughs> this is the weird yeah. thing, right? It'll be like yeah, yeah. painters and then it's like sculptors. You got to get the respect of the sculptors. Then you got to well, get respect of the video I always thought people. that the internet was was uh, completely for everyone. So it mm-hmm. wasn't a specific category. But then I did find that uh, your medium is very defining for art spaces. Yeah, I think it's unique that medium is tied to community among artists. Right. For example, I think for painters, it's really hard to be considered an artist because you're always considered a painter first, mm-hmm. exactly. and which is the, its own category of collectors who love paintings because they're so collectible. But biennials and institutions are not so eager to show painting as the cutting edge of um, thinking. Well, I would hate to start out in painting because it's so it's a, so big that community, right? Like to stand out in painting is really hard. But to stand out and attract people in, let's say, video art was pretty easy. And then in internet art, that was a little bit harder. It was a bit wider, right? And in new media, maybe a little bit harder. But each one was small enough that I like. I think you probably know everyone in internet art, like, or almost everyone. No, I think that's an arrogant Western perspective. <laughs> I, 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 I'm really curious about internet art behind the Great Firewall. Or well, in, yeah. internet art out of Nigeria, and I think there must be tons of interesting stuff. I don't know, but I yeah, and actually that's a really good point. Uh, but what I'm saying is, you know, everyone that could that is potentially uh, like a, a like a an influencer no. node, an influencer uh, within that space. Yeah, I don't yeah. Know. So there are other communities we don't have access to, or that don't have yeah. access to us. However, there are, and I'm I'm not. I I just think of you as like a having been there early on and part of certain networks, uh, the same way Miltus Manatus was trying to establish a network as like an influencer in that mm-hmm. in that group, right? Like he could set up a brand name and get others to follow it. I don't know how, you know, much more of an influencer you could be. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there's social capital, of course, built into that. And that's why I think you're absolutely right. Like there are, are networks of people doing really interesting things that we're not hearing about, not because they're not important, but because our networks aren't uh, tied to one another, right? Yeah. But then then the interesting thing for me is that uh, you have these special categories where it's easier to stand out than, Mm -hmm. let's say, contemporary art in general. But everybody wants to end up in the museums. Like every artist wants to be, because that's the nicest room. Because Uh, whenever all roads lead to the museum, is what you're saying. Yeah, kind of. Not even that I think museums always do great stuff, but Mm -hmm. it's just when you start in new media and you're doing 
transmedial or whatever kind of festival that I didn't I'm not so in that scene anyway but mm -hmm. everybody who's in in these different scenes whether it's performance art or video art or, uh, net art or new media art you don't get the cool real estate mm -hmm. and I think everybody at some point wants to show in a pristine white space Right, and the just because the work is perceived in a more focused way, it, 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 of course it's an honor, but it's also the ideal space. But the question, and is, it like, just happens that the, the ideal yeah. spaces are in control by right. mainstream art and not by those little categories. Okay, yeah, that's where I was. I, that's what I wanted to ask, and I think this is the contentious kind of position, which is that the museum at that point doesn't care what medium you're working in, right? They just see artist and what the artist is trying to communicate right yeah but or, they also like constellations they like to see moments in history yeah so every once in a while they'll do like a survey exhibition of internet artists from the 90s or something like that right or mm -hmm. they haven't they haven't done that yet but yeah <laughs> i'm like sure it's coming it's, yeah. it should be coming if there are any curators listening it's like probably the biggest show that hasn't been put on um but then but then they do, if they're going to do a solo exhibition of an artist, they're not, are they telling the same story or, um, are, or is there like this other class or this other layer of just well, called I, contemporary I, art? I don't know so much that point of view of, of the museum and the curator, but I know from artists that uh, in the beginning, everybody was excited about the internet because it's a, it's a door. So mm -hmm. everybody was, okay, let's go in that door. And see what's going on there but then very quickly a lot of artists were like i don't want to be labeled as an internet artist so i'm going to move away from the internet label that's yeah. kind of how post-internet happened yeah and then there was a huge debate okay so we should introduce this as part of this topic right because yeah. so post-internet uh is probably the most like hated and uh t discussed uh but it won't it's go away it's a very away. catchy term but nobody's happy with it so the history of this word, I'm going to tell the real history just so people know. The uh, history of break it down for us. Come on, <laughs> going to break it down. The history of this word is like is that two people in New York had a conversation. Those people were Marissa Olson and Gene McHugh. Gene McHugh was doing his. Uh, I feel like Matt was he doing his masters? You know what he's doing. Anyway, Gene McHugh was writing a blog as his thesis for either a PhD or masters. I can't remember. This blog was called Post Internet. He wrote a series of essays. I'm not sure if it still exists as a blog. It was a really simple WordPress. It had WordPress a difficult blog. URL. It was. It was all. It's hard to, to remember. Obscure. It's true. Yeah, but it was, it was a default WordPress theme. Yeah, he was writing this blog. I actually sat down with him in New York uh, midway through writing this blog, and that's how I came across it. We had coffee together. He's like, and I'm like, who are you? I'm like Gene McHugh. I have this new idea. It's called Post Internet. You should read my blog. And I checked it out. And he was still writing essays for it at that time. Those essays became the foundation of this term post internet, which got kind of sucked up into the community. And it described, should we describe what post internet means according to that, his thesis? Sure. Yeah. So I don't want to discount Marissa in this, uh, in Marissa's history, but I didn't, I wasn't, I was friends with Marissa Olson and she was writing for Rhizome at the time. So she was also a part of popularizing she, She's usually term. named as the person who coined the term. She coined the term, yeah. But I did sit down with Gene. I had coffee with Gene. Gene was writing the blog. I was also friends with Marissa at the time, but not as close to her. But she was an edit. She was the editor at Rhizome at the time, and so she had the ability to get out to a larger number of people. I think it's a fair thing to say. People are gonna. The comment section's gonna explode right here. <laughs> <laughs> However, 
where Raph's like, he's turning red. He's so stressed. <laughs> this is such controversial territory. No, it's just funny to me how these things are so unimportant, but the more you talk about them, people start thinking they're important. I have to actually, I didn't go and, and do, so if we're wrong, let's just say right here, if we're wrong, please uh, have a discussion in the comments. Happy to get the history right on this. It's been fought over many, many times. Um, and whether or not it belongs to Marissa or Jean or Jean and Marissa, I don't think it really matters to kind of this conversation in a way. However, I want to note that both people were involved and referenced uh, in, in the inception of post-internet. So the idea of post-internet, though, do you want to summarize it? Just because I've been well, talking it's, a lot. It, it's internet-inspired sculpture. Well, basically, it's like, you know, it's really a solution to... it. Jean's position was... There is no, no art that is not internet art after the internet, right? It's really art after the internet. It's the best way to think about it instead of post-internet. So it's imp- there are no artist practices that don't touch the internet anymore. And this was like a good, what, seven years ago? Something like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's 2010 or something like that. <laughs> you're, like, you're very careful not to state any mis-, mis... No, 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 it's fine. I just think we're putting too much emphasis on the creation of the word, and I want to get to the, okay, uh, let's the get beefier to it. part. But- All right, go, you go straight. Take the, take the beeline. But basically, any art is now internet art. And so internet, it gave art, internet yeah, but artists that's very problematic because then... then well, that's why there's a like, debate. If, if, if a work was uh, shipped through DHL, it's like, oh, that's kind of an internet brand. Okay, it's yeah. internet art. It, yeah. Okay, so all I'm saying is um, it gave permission to internet artists to start having physical gallery shows. And this... No, it, no I don't agree. I want to... I wanna, <laughs> as always. <laughs> this is where it gets... There, there, was, a, there was an exhibition in Berlin uh, because the, the terminology, I think, came later. I think the work was there first. So uh, what happened was, I think, when you make works on the screen and... Uh, like Oliver Larrick was mostly making moving images. Mm-hmm. He made a 50 cent video, things like that. Alexandra Domanovich was mostly making internet works. Constant Dillard was making. And there was these two guys called H3D, Daniel Keller and Nick yeah. Cosmos. And they Nick, always Nick made Cosmos. sculpture related to uh, whatever's going on. But it was always sculpture, but they would make little mock-ups and photograph them, put them on Tumblr, and people would think like, whoa, that's a huge installation, because they would mm-hmm. use Photoshop and put a little person next to it, and it would look huge. Yeah. And people would think that was a, a big sculpture, and they were invited into big shows just based on this mocked-up doc- documentation, and then they would make the work. Yeah. So Classic. it was this, was this trick of using the internet to get into the door of real spaces. And uh, so they were in this... Uh, studio complex in Berlin where there was a lot of studios and there was a courtyard, a big park in the middle and uh, they would organize group shows there and the, the, the owner of the park asked the two guys, uh, H3D hey, do you guys want to curate something? Like, mm-hmm. Okay, we'll organize a sculpture park but it's a sculpture park made by internet artists. So they invited a lot of people who usually only worked on the screen right. to, to participate in a sculpture park and the it was people like Joel Holmberg, Constant Dörlard, Harm von der Dorpel, me, uh, Oliver Alexandra, etc., etc. And everybody was already kind of like, hmm, I'm a little bit tired of the screen. I want to play around with other materials. Mm-hmm, and this yeah. was the first time Oliver showed those poured uh, copies of uh, classic sculptures. And Alexandra had this 
stack of A4 papers that turned into a sculpture, and Harm had these. Oh, is that where she first showed it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so everybody was kind of getting ready to show that stuff, and then uh, it it happened. As far as I know, that was a really uh, no, no, no. I I do remember, and that's much more interesting than than whoever coined the term. It's just. Um, <laughs> it's true, and, and I remember seeing the show. Uh, I made an interactive sculpture because my work is all about interaction. So it was where you could throw broken bottles at a wall, mm-hmm. and I remember doing the show and thinking, "This is really cool, and it, it, it's it, uh, all this broken glass is kind of beautiful to look at, but it doesn't work in documentation." So I stayed mm-hmm. with the internet because I thought the potential audience is so much bigger. Mm-hmm. But I think everybody else was like. Uh, this show is not that great, but it looks really great in documentation. <laughs> <laughs> so, was the but other were, sentiment? I, I, I mean, those ideas, though, the the in the works themselves actually had ideas that hadn't really existed before that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And I but think I, that's I, why. I, yeah, that's why those artists are now all, um, you know, I, I think more significant than than ever, and and that that work. Uh, you're right. The work is more powerful yeah. than the term, but a I lot often, of debate I, ensued around the term. I often think of post-internet as Instagram, and not mm. as it being working on Instagram, but as Instagram itself. Which Instagram made photo sharing easy. It's mm-hmm. a, it, it made it easy for curators to use the internet, and I'm talking about established curators who always thought the internet was too complicated Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden uh, someone like Hans Obrist is like oh I love the internet and he's using Periscope and he's using (laughs) Instagram Um, and he was already connected to internet art before but I think Instagram really made it that any gallerist any you know the art world is a lot of old people who don't yeah. understand computers and desktop computers and using FTP well, and installing one, a, my yeah, a part my of SQL. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it, but I mean the, the the blue chip art world. Yeah. They just didn't they they didn't want to set up MySQL databases and and start writing blog posts and and learning the tags and whatever. Yeah. But all of a sudden there's Instagram and I feel like post internet is the equivalent of that where it made internet culture user-friendly for, for spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without comp- and I think without con- compromising itself conceptually in certain cases, in the best mm-hmm. cases, right? Yeah. And I think that's why, um, that's why the thing I said that infuriated you, though, is something that is one of the reasons that this word still continues to like float around yeah. and not be yeah, adopted yeah. is because there's mixed, other people then start to jump on, right? Well, no one, no one at this point is happy to use, say, I'm a post-internet artist. I, yeah, I think, it's more of a punchline to a joke. Around a 2009, I remember a lot of artists were like, I, I don't want to be labeled as an internet artist. I don't want to be in too many internet art group shows. Mm-hmm. I think right now it's becoming a bit cooler again because... Uh, it feels like everybody explored gallery space and actually the internet is a very interesting space too. Yeah, there's uh, tons of potential still yeah, there. But I, th- yeah. I think the, the, the word post-internet is very cringe-inducing right now. <laughs> and I think it, right now it's pretty cool. If you say I'm an internet artist, it's not so embarrassing. Yeah, so, yeah. so I, I don't know. So is that what you're calling yourself? So in the time since then, uh, I, I came up with a category called Famous New Media Artists for Myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was my my way of dealing with the awkwardness 
of calling yourself anything was just to make fun of titles mm-hmm. in general. Like, I'm, there's no such thing as a famous <laughs> new media. That's ridiculous. There is. There's just one. <laughs> there's just one. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting approach to branding is like, okay, uh, don't play by the rules that were decided by somebody else and then you make your own game. Yeah, there's a classic example uh, of that in Jack Trout's classic book, Positioning, (laughs) which is like uh, Avis Rent-A-Car. Are you familiar with Mm -hmm. it in the United States? Avis was like a new, uh, it was always the second place brand um, after Budget. Behind Hertz? Yeah, was it Hertz or Budget? I can't remember, but it was one of the two. I think it was Budget. And, And so they came up with this brilliant tagline, which was like, Hurts worse. They said we're in we're second place, but we try harder, and so <laughs> they, they they crystallized in people's head that like budget didn't really need to try. You didn't really need to care, right? But we're, yeah. because we're second, we're the underdog, yeah, and yeah, and yeah. we have and we have, we're actually going to give you great service. So that's uh, considered one of the most successful positioning statements in in the history of time. Yeah, that uh, the same could be true in art. You could say, uh, <laughs> I'm the. I'm I'm uh, the the sec- the I'm I'm not a very successful artist, <laughs> so I try harder. <laughs> Maybe that wouldn't work. But I yeah I think uh, it, it what frustrated me at the time with the term is that post internet sounded like okay we had the internet and now we have something more futuristic, but it was actually less futuristic. And at the end of the day, I think this is where I was going with like, is there a gen- generic, is maybe everything leaning towards generic artists? Because in schools a long time ago, they, not that long ago, but they, they switched to mixed media practices from the Bauhaus kind of model where, you know, which is actually a Bauhaus extension in some ways, right? Where you learn a little bit of everything and we don't, you know, we don't, you don't, we don't siphon you towards carpentry and, only. And you learn by, by exploring materials. Yeah, you explore all the materials. So, the idea that you would be like focused on one material is absurd to a certain extent. You have to focus enough to get good well, at it. The, the only argument I had at the time, and it, so when post internet came up, I was still like, no, I'm an internet artist. I'm just pure internet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the only argument I had is that all the other materials had been explored so much mm-hmm. that, that it was very hard to invent anything. And the internet was so new that anything you do is new. But when you meet a regular uh, human being on the street that's not an artist, and you say, uh, what do you say? Do you say I'm a I'm a post internet artist, or do you say I'm an right artist? Now, I, right now, I usually say uh, I'm an artist. And most of my work is online, and the work yeah. that isn't comes from a, a sort of a, a playing with the computer. Yeah. So these category distinctions only really have mattered within the art community among artists themselves. Yeah, but if you it, it, it's if you think of an artist like uh, so, all the categories that existed before all the labels, artists didn't. No one wanted to be called a conceptual artist. No one wanted to be called minimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one wanted to be called an impressionist. But these these things are important to understand. Again, mm-hmm. back to the night sky. It's just really right. hard to observe the night sky without constellations. I like how you did that with the impressionism and Van Gogh. There, it's like a <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, his post-impressionism. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're. you're but in, they were all really unhappy with the term. Like, but were those movements around when they were making the work? That's the question in every case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there would be group shows, and they would call it, "Well, this is minimal yeah, art." And then they would all true. write letters. Well, I, of course, I want to be in this show, and I respect the artist, but this term sucks. Well, yeah, and it reminds me that like some of the most important art movements and the ones I refer to most had a manifesto, and that this manifesto started came out at some point, either just shortly after they started making work a new way, or at yeah, the yeah. at the inception. 
Yeah. Like the Futurist Manifest is a famous one, Data uh, Fluxus for me. <clears throat> and that these, that's a really, I want, I don't, maybe we didn't have that, but they did have that for internet art in the 1990s. And mm. then a bunch of punk kids came up in the t- <laughs> in the new millennium which we're we're part of it we kind of ignored that 90s history to a certain extent and started to evolve our own modes of making because we grew up with the internet we're like we know what we're talking about mm-hmm. and that and then post-internet became almost synonymous with millennial in my opinion <laughs> and it was like yeah oh millennial artwork it's artwork that's like ignorant of history <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and but I don't know if people have settled on a, a term, and certainly like but the, the, I avoided the conversation. There's definitely a thing if you go to museums <clears throat> mm-hmm. and you see, for example, the the relational aesthetics group, and they're always referring to cinema. They they will use Hitchcock or Disney in their right. work. They might redo a Hitchcock scene, but uh, with people on a subway. Who knows? But the mm-hmm. references are always to cinema, and especially cinema. French New Wave and like a Godard and Hitchcock mm-hmm. and all this very intelligent stuff. And I remember doing a, a party at a residency in Berlin and it was called YouTube Conversations. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that I would put on the first YouTube clip and ask other people to do the next and the next. And instead of talking, we talk in YouTube clips. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I remember someone sitting next to me saying, what would be the most embarrassing clip to show right now? And he's like, yeah, something from a Godard movie. That would be so uncool to show, right? Because everyone was showing weird internet culture. Just like a so, lonely woman on a coast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, smoking a cigarette. cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> and so I do feel there's a generation that distances itself from what happened before. And there's definitely something now about uh, computers, internet culture, network culture, branding. Uh, it's, nece- it's necessary for something new to happen to ignore what happened before. I mean, or to react against it in some yeah. way. I'll and, say, and, and, you know. and, and, and th- there was also the, the big thing with post-internet that because it was more user-friendly, more collectible, more easier to install, um, there was a lot of jealousy from the previous generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And also because artists' careers could be financed by the private market for the yeah, first time. Yeah, because NetArt just didn't have a financial model. I mean, and my model was to... I haven't rejected this... This I think everyone's rejected post-internet, but internet art I still refer to um, even when I'm doing a live performance because it'll integrate like an API or something from the internet or some something like that. But um, the, I wanted to just t- briefly talk about new media because it's been so much like inherent in what uh, my practice anyway. But also, mm-hmm. I've ta- I talked to so many new media artists, and I know a lot of them are listening too. Where that's that, a core audience. <laughs> that term is probably more uh, more dis- sort of discussed and debated than, and but also historically completely insignificant, right? So, well, I think new media art is also. A genre of art that does a lot of panel talks. <laughs> Maybe it is, but one thing that it doesn't have is any kind of um, generational bearing. So it's been going on because it's new media art. This word "new" it's been just new like, media since <laughs> the forties, or yeah, what? yeah. And so it's similar to where, post where does it start? Does it start with Tengali or someone like that? Like, yeah, you could. So I'll tell you where I draw the line. As I, I, I start to draw the line. Um, in around because of my practice, I think around in the 1980s, as artists like David Rokeby, uh, who's a Canadian, started to work with computer vision and performance and installation, 
Um, but you could go further back for sure. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I always think of the Duchamp bicycle wheel as the first interactive art. Yeah, because you could go back to like electronic art, which is so new media and electronic. There's some you know art. There, there, there's distinctions there, and even within new media, there's like transmedia, intermedia. <laughs> it's like. <laughs> Uh, and my I've father met- always noted that the pencil is quite a new technology. It's, it's about the same time as photography when it was invented. So well, I the think le- the lead pencil. So that's also new media. Well, that's why like a lot of people like this term intermedia. It's the space between media and really like I think fluxus or data and people like that were investigating yeah. media as a material. Anyway, so. There, there's just as much debate in this community, but they never settled the debate like 50 <laughs> or 60 years. And so I don't think that a museum really even knows how to refer to this history some, sometimes, you know, like, so yeah. it'll, uh, to your point earlier, like, if event- if people are supposed to call themselves something in order to be part of a movement, these people, it, it's like, which I'm also a part of, have been just pushing that conversation forward down the road for about 30 or 40 years. And so they just ref- there's no way to really refer to that period of work and making, which I think is very interesting. And I, so it's it's been marginalized from the art contemporary art community. Yeah, now. And, and whenever you meet new media artists, they're like, "How do I get out of this ghetto?" Yeah, because yeah. that was always the thing. It, it's it's exactly. separated, and that makes it very harmless. It's like, okay, you guys, that it's like there's the big table and there's the kids table. Yeah, you guys yeah. have to sit there. So yeah, every new media artist you meet, so listeners who are not new media artists, they don't know this, but. <laughs> There's a certain shame <laughs> and feeling that you're at the kids' table. It's a real estate question because the kids' table is smaller. And we're working so hard, Raphael. Don't you know how hard our jobs are? The technology's always failing. You can't preserve it. <laughs> and so it, it's actually a really, it's a soft spot for a lot of people. And, but I think it comes back to this, that, it, that it's not, ide- sometimes it's not, ideolo- if it's not ideologically focused, and it, that is something that internet art did have, an ideology versus a technology, right? So if you're tying yourself to technology and it's always new technology, guess what? You'll be new new media art will exist forever, but it'll never really be it'll never crystallize as a movie. There's also the problem if you're focused on new technology, within five years it's old. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But exactly. I, I, I have this idea, it's a dream of mine to one day uh, do this exhibition to curate a big exhibition with broken new media installations that from collectors <laughs> and museums and all the stuff that the voltage doesn't work anymore, the graphics yeah. card broke down, and I want to exhibit them as sculptures, all these machines that are not working. That are no longer, yeah, it would just be like an obsolete, the, the show could be called obsolete or something like that. But um, Yeah, or it's, no, it should be called new media. It, <laughs> it, it'll be the newest right. stuff from right. 1963 and the newest stuff from 68 and onwards. Hot and fresh, the new yeah. media show by right <laughs> First VR installation, sorry, it doesn't work anymore. Well, because in new media, there's this race always to be the first to use a new technology. Yeah, uh, this is the first GPS tagging VR uh, role-play game. But in, So I think, personally, just like probably you believe the same thing, is that like you really need to tie yourself to a shift in thinking or ideology. If, if you're going to look for a movement, if, if people listening are like, I want to pick a movement to be a part of, or like yeah. maybe it's probably going to happen... Uh, be- not because of a new technology or because someone else came up with the words, because you're passionate about a new idea, something that no one else has really yeah. lived or thought about before. Well, there's also something that um, when you start, the computer is a very natural material because you grow mm-hmm. up, everybody has a computer more than that you would have clay or paint around you. Yeah. So everybody starts in the computer, but you grow up and you get access to bigger spaces and more materials. So you, you try other stuff, but 
a lot of times when I see artists moving away from computational ways of working to more solid ways of working, sometimes something gets lost because those computational things can be very surprising and, and mm -hmm. uh, what's the word, uh, uh, quirky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can lose that quirkiness because you, you start making these sort of monoliths that are mm -hmm. very impressive, but they don't have that sort of homemade DIY. Oh, right, yeah. That, that feeling can go away because the... It's again that real estate thing of like, oh, I want to be in the fancy room, but then you give up a bit of the, the quirkiness. Well, and maybe a little bit of yourself, which I think leads me to like what I would consider like the, the, the driving force behind my practice, maybe behind yours, which is like if you're not doing what you enjoy or what, you know, or you're, if you're not being yourself, you're not really part of, you don't really belong to anything, right? Like yeah. if you're trying to be a part of a movement, <laughs> like it's not yeah. going to work, right? Yeah, there's also the fact of growing up, like maybe when you were younger, you loved tinkering with, with stuff. And when you're older, like, ah, I want to focus on something else. I don't want to be the whiz kid. I, I, mm -hmm. I don't want to always be... I, I remember going to a, um, a workshop in Brooklyn that did a lot of custom LED stuff. Because I mm -hmm. thought, oh, I could make physical versions of my websites as like LED sculptures. Right. So I went there and they order all these panels from China and they get all these graphics cards and they make custom oh, yeah. computers on Raspberry Pis and uh, a screen can have any shape. Mm -hmm. And I was oh, this is interesting. And then I, just, I think I talked about this before on the podcast. And I, you, just I think saw, last week, actually. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, no, this is not for me. This is yeah. the rest of my life soldering stuff. So there's, there's something about when you're 20 that you might want to play with technology a lot and mess with things. And maybe when you're 40... Uh, you're a different you person. Yeah, but that's, that's like a great philosophy for life, which is like, do as many things as possible, continue to do that until you find like something, you know, a, a, a position or an idea that you're really excited about. And then like, you can go really fast and hard against that idea. Mm. Um, and then hopefully at the end of it, you've done something you're proud of and blah, blah, blah. Um, but do, do you think in your case, um, you, you've always been around the body and performance and video mm -hmm. and all but, these things. But I don't belong to the performance art community. I should say that. Um, not that I, not out of, not because I... Not by choice? Not by choice, but yeah, I never fit well, in with those people. I, yeah, so that's the thing, the fitting in question. The goal would be not to fit in, but if you're really completely 100% not fitting in, you're not going to show anywhere. That's right. That's right. So I just, that's why I said early on, like I found a community where I the conversations were relevant to them. Then those people included me in shows, um, and and then that got the ball rolling. And, and that's an, that's usually enough for, for most. But the, people. the 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 contemporary art performance world and like Performa Festival and all these things, I think humor is very frowned upon. Like, <laughs> that's, that's very right. problematic. Yeah, yeah. I, you, if you're trying to be entertaining and you're not trying to create like an endurance performance that uses your, like where you're either not like hurting yourself or drawing blood or milk from your body. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the, the, don't get me wrong though. There's like Jeremy, great... we like your performance, but you were comfortable. You know that's not allowed. <laughs> and people were enjoying it. <laughs> 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 it's very Calvinist consider, this, yeah. uh, contemporary art uh, uh. yeah for me those are like those standards or the, those tropes end up being like ugh, like why would I ugh, why would I do that like why would I why you know it reminds me of a, an interview with Roy Lichtenstein the pop art painter and he talked about the generation before where Jackson Pollock would run into Rothko and they would fist fight about uh, truth 
And he said, imagine I would walk into a bar and talk to Andy Warhol and, and get in a fist fight. <laughs> so there's different generations where right, right. first everybody's very serious and, and, and... But I think this idea that you, just because we're running out of time here, but this idea of like not fitting in as I think a great early strategy for anyone who feel, if you feel like you're not fitting in, just like, because mm-hmm. I know there are people that are like, probably feeling alone and they're doing really cool or interesting things. The fact that that's actually really important to your story and like probably your future, um, you know, uh, ability to continue to make work and be recognized for it in some way so that you can keep making it. That's the only reason you'd want it anyway, is just so that you can like, you know, hopefully people are paying attention so that, you know, there's some motivation behind you, some acknowledgement some legitimization but being different is really important right yeah it, it reminds me a lot of uh, different teenage subcultures where you get together and all not fit in in the same way mm-hmm, exactly way yeah 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 exactly like i think punk culture was famous for like in the 1980s like new wave for like, you know like having doing weird things to your body like having a you know like a safety pin in your ear and a mohawk you stood out and then others could find you because you stood out, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then you gather and you're like, okay, we're all and we're pretty different in the same way. Yeah, we're all weirdos, and and that's what that's like. That's but our then the gang. weird thing would be to wear a suit in the middle of all those people, so, <laughs> and that was post punk. Yeah. But for me, like, it's really it's an awkward transition. I remember feeling really really awkward for a long time, like I was alone, like no one understood what I was about. And then I hear from people all the time. They're like, oh yeah, and then I found. There are other weirdos just like me. And it's like this, and you're lucky to be a weirdo, is what I always say, right? Like you're lucky if you're weird. Yeah, yeah. And then you also have to realize that the entire infrastructure of the, the fine art world is is based on conservatism. It's that's just it's an archive. So an <laughs> archive right. by nature you hit that has wall. to be yeah. has to be conservative. And yeah. maybe thirty years later, like maybe there will be a net art show. Uh, well, yeah, whatever's weird today will be the mainstream, like, in 30 years. It usually takes a generation, right? So mm-hmm. the whatever's weird right now in art is probably going to be mainstream. But there's, art. Also the, there's also the thing where sometimes, um, because the, 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 the gatekeepers are conservative, mm-hmm. they, they might, in the, in the 2000s, show work that looks like work from the 70s because they think, okay, that's art. Mm-hmm. And there's actually more interesting things happening outside of their vision. Well, that's the biggest complaint most people have about some of what got lumped in as post-internet, which was zombie modernism, right? It was like, oh yeah, because because the whole archive, uh, and this was the the ideological uh, underpinning, was because like the internet allows us to like consume thumbnails from across history all at once. You can see like all of history on a single web page. Or a series of web pages. Yeah, then I, we I can felt co- like that was the equivalent of the strokes, where it's, like, it's right. kind of fresh but not really new. Yeah, so we can collect all the best ideas. Like I'll take a little bit of Brancusi, a little bit of Duchamp, and like, and then I'll make a sculpture. And look, there it is. That's post, <laughs> right? Looks yeah. like it's got brass and marble. What else do you want? Well, you shared <laughs> it on the on the internet, so it's internet art. So. Yeah, and now we'll call it. Yeah, and it's new. It's on the internet, right? Yeah. So <laughs> I think that was like Pottery Barn presents post-internet art. <laughs> uh, and a lot of people did well with that financially, but it got quickly. Uh, I think it became a quickly a cliche. I, I made I made work about that um, humorously a few years ago. I don't think that it, people are doing that so much anymore. Yeah, it'll come back. <laughs> well, yeah, interior decorating is always in is always in style. It's a force. <laughs> it's a force. Can't you can't deny it.
So um, that's probably that's it. I mean, we could talk about this for hours because it's hotly yeah, contested. I, I mean, the categories are always artificial. Like, it, it, end of the day, people are making the work they want to make, and then they respond to many different influences. But then, for it's again those constellations that people need. But well, I'm glad the constellations exist. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't have met. So yeah. Um, I'm glad, and, and it really helped crystallize for me that what I was doing mattered to a community. So whether or not I still identify with that community or they identify with me, there was a moment where I just felt like I belonged to a... Yeah, a, a I guess new media is like those rap names when you're called young something, and then <laughs> y- you turn 55 and you're still a young Joe or whatever. Yeah. Young Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, still Meek Mills. Yeah. Um, so what do we want to do now? Are we going to talk... Uh, are we going to... Is this it? Are we going to talk about our uh, field recording for the week? Oh, yeah, let's do that. Let's talk about the field recording. So um, I recorded two boiling eggs. (laughs) (laughs) We have a whole breakfast ritual. Either I or Christina does the breakfast, and we usually have boiled eggs. And then uh, we started doing it, but we got more serious, so we got better eggs. We thought, does it even make a difference? Yeah, does it make a difference? Does it? Well, if they're soft-boiled, you can definitely... So the yolk is a bit more orange. These eggs are actually... The shell is a light blue. Oh, that's pretty. They're heirloom eggs. And so it, you immediately think, like, am I being tricked? These eggs are three times the price of regular eggs. They just eggs. dip them in blue ink, I think. I don't know, but they really taste better. Whether it's a placebo effect, I don't know. But if, if I have a boiled egg in a hotel now, I'm like, mm, no, no. How much is one of these eggs? Me. How much uh, is one egg? Uh, no, I think six eggs are $4. Or four fifty. Oh, okay, so it's about uh, four times the price of a regular egg. Okay, yeah, it depends which regular. Yeah, and then we got an egg topper, which is a little machine that uh, you you hold at the top of the egg, and there's a spring in it, and it mm-hmm. hits the egg and makes a perfect circle. So you open it, and then we got a tiny salt shaker for the egg mm. and a tiny spoon that actually, you know how you often use a spoon, but you still have to break the egg a little bit mm, to get yes, in. Yes, yes. So we got a time. So uh, we we've been upping our egg game, and then uh, you'll just listen to the the eggs boiling, and then I'll think about uh, you eating them as well. Uh, we call it scaring the egg in Dutch, but you what? you 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 pour cold water on the egg, so the ah. the the little film around the egg, what do you call it? It it loosens up a little bit, and it's easier to open. Good tip. I yeah. thought that was to stop it from cooking too, so you get the perfect. That's how many, true. How long do you leave it in for? Are we going to listen to three a minutes? Whole? So are we going to listen to a whole three minutes of egg No, boiling? no, it, it was towards the end. So I think the whole thing is two minutes with the, <laughs> two minutes of boiling and then the, the cooling. Okay. So enjoy the boiled eggs. See you guys next week. Yeah, please keep sending in your field recordings. Uh, review us on iTunes. Give us five stars if you can. <laughs> because it, yeah. I notice people are like, great podcast, four stars. I'm like, well, what? tell us, what, what is that fifth star all about? What are we missing? Anyway, uh, great to hear from you. Keep commenting. Uh, send us your field recording. We love it all. And uh, we love hearing from you over email. So thanks again. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.